0: So, I, th- I leave you to go on with the kind of management of IBD, and, and we'll go after after that to some other differentials of, for chronic diarrhea other than IBD.
1: Sure. Yeah. I think treatment of IBD is broadly divided into induction of remission and maintenance treatment. When it comes to inducing remission, I think first lines are often steroids, and this either can be in the form of intravenous or uh, oral steroids. Intravenous steroids are often used for patients who are presenting with acute severe colitis requiring hospital admissions. Oral steroids can often be used for uh, patients who sort of Present with mild moderate disease in out in an outpatient setting, which is often used as as part of inducing remission in patients who sort of either intolerant steroids or have failed steroid therapy. Maintenance treatment is again quite complex. There are many agents that we can use, but we can just sort of going, I'm gonna go through some brief sort of Maintenance treatment guidelines. So, in terms for ulcerative colitis, the first line is often five amino salicylates, so, which comes in both topical forms and oral formulations. Side effects of this pancreatitis and AKI. So, patients being started on octasa or pentasa often needing a regular blood test for the first month or so just to make sure that using renal function is fine while being started on this. Patients who are not responding to the first line, this is where you can either add immunomodulators such as azathioprine or macaptopurine, or you could consider biologics. Biologics, again, more and more biologics are coming up on the market. Commonly, the ones that we use are anti such as infliximab and adalimumab. And we do have other biologic options such as vedolizumab and ustekinumab and tofacitinib, but there are many, many other biologics that are emerging. Maintenance treatment for Crohn's, we often don't use 5-salicylates. It's often used more in UC with colonic involvement. So in Crohn's, you can either start with immunomodulators or proceed straight to biologics if you do have quite an extensive disease or behavior of the Crohn's. And the treatment choices are not fixed. I mean, not, there's no fast and hard rule. It's broadly influenced by... The patient's risk factors, what's the site, the severity of the disease, the behavior of the disease, what's the patient's preferences, because some biologics are subcutaneous, some are intravenous. So it really depends on patient factors or previous response to treatment or previous drug tolerances and the presence of complications such as perianal or fistulating disease, as you might favor more biological treatment for this group of patients.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think you hit, you hit on a very important thing there. And it, it is, you know, a majority of patients when they're first diagnosed with IBD are quite young. You know, they therefore tend to be quite active at doing their own research and, and reading about it. And, you know, these people are going to live with this disease for the vast majority, if not their entire life so it is about building a trust and building a relationship with them over time and that involves talking to them honestly telling them the options and going through with them what you would recommend and why you would recommend it the other thing i would add to the treatment for particularly for uh, induction, but also maintenance with Crohn's, which is becoming more and more like in vogue, and there's better evidence for it now is something called exclusive enteral nutrition. So essentially, going onto a liquid diet, and with and that has been shown in many cases to be able to induce remission in Crohn's disease. It's not easy, and it requires good dietitian support, and so it's not available to institute in all trusts and all hospitals but it, it, but there is good evidence for it, and it does avoid you know using blasting patients with you know very strong steroids which are obviously a good treatment when required but you know they have their side effects they have long-term effects such as bone health and hypertension and diabetic control so you know they, they if we can avoid using them where possible and have an alternative treatment i think it's a good thing there's a newer treatment on the market which is becoming more popular and certainly the covid pandemic led to a big increase in in its use is budesonide. So there's different preparations of budesonide. So you can have a terminal ileal release or you can have a colonic release, which is either quartermint or MMX. and, and, And they are... You know, systemically have much less side effects or should in theory than uh prednisolone and, and a bit more favored by some people users that also don't have to do a tapering regime like you do a prednisolone so there are other kind of things to talk about and again i'd point to the to the excellent and thorough bsg guidelines on this because actually they have they go into a lot of detail about the kind of breadth of it and could you give it a nice summary of the kind of the broad strokes of the treatment but i think you know that's for another time and i think you should have a, have a read of it so i think that's a, you've done a lovely summary of of ibd which is obviously you know in a, in an interview scenario is going to be very high up there on the differential and, and people can talk about it for a long time we'll just touch on some of the kind of the other um differentials for it in there we talked earlier about colonic neoplasia so cancer which can sometimes present as a diarrhea also often if it's some, something like a carcinoid or a neuroendocrine tumor then that can more commonly present as diarrhea that is it's fairly straightforward. You need a histological diagnosis. You need to know how far it's spread and assess it using the TNM system. And then you need to get it referred to your local MDT and get an oncology opinion and a radiological opinion for all of that. The things that are a bit more interesting we'll go on to now. So I'll leave Kriti to talk about things like bile acid malabsorption and we'll, um, we'll go from there.
1: Sure. Uh, so there are some sort of interesting diagnoses, but rather rare, diagnosis when it comes to patient presenting with chronic diarrhea, but it's often key to sort of think of this when trying to evaluate this patient. So first thing we're going to go through is bile acid malabsorption. If you look at the BSG guideline for IBS, it is mentioned about one third of patients with IBS diarrhea predominant actually suffer from bile acid malabsorption. So it is more common than perceived. Risk factors include previous cholecystectomy or previous surgeries. Diagnosing bile acid malabsorption, you do a specific test called a CCAT test, Might may or may not be available in your trust. And so that is quite diagnostic of bile acid malabsorption. And the treatment for this is by using bile absorbing agents such as cholestyramine.
0: Yeah, exactly. So the, the the treatment, as you say, is is bile well, acid sequestrants such as cothar. I mean, there's other ones like colestevolam, a or colestipol the pathophysiology to it behind all of that is basically that your bile acids your bile acids are released by your gallbladder in response to cholecystokinin release which and then they in normal circulation about 95% of those are then reabsorbed in the terminal ileum obviously if you've had surgery before so terminal ileal surgery but also things like gallbladder surgery anything like that then you get impairment of that of that reabsorption process and those bile acids then go into the colon and cause real water secretion that leads to diarrhea and the cholesteroamine or cholicevalam will simply just try and cause that to be reabsorbed and, and and stop it from and stop it from causing the symptoms and then the other kind of rarer diagnoses but things to know about which I'll, I'll leave Chris to talk about is one of them is microscopic colitis
1: so, microscopic colitis, there are two forms. So, it's it's either collagenous or lymphocytic colitis, and this is based on the histological assessment. These patients often present as chronic, non-bloody diarrhea. And again, they have minimal or no endoscopic findings. So, the diagnosis is purely made on histological examination. It is strongly associated with certain use of medications, and so, where drug history is quite important uh, when it comes to your history taking. So the implicated drugs are your PPIs, your NSAIDs, and sertraline. These are the, there are more drugs that are associated with microscopic my, colitis, but these three group of drugs are sort of the most commonly associated ones. It's also linked to other autoimmune diseases, mainly celiac, thyroid disease, and rheumatoid arthritis. And the treatment for microscopic colitis is steroids. We often use prednisone for these patients, and sort of they get started on sort of a weaning regime of prednisone.
0: Absolutely, and I think as you as you mentioned there uh, the vast majority of microscopic colitis is caused by drugs. There's a lot of drugs that can do it, and there's a great list on up to date about all of that. But the common things you mentioned, I would absolutely agree with. So it, you know, if it's about trying to work out if actually you can stop those medications that they're on or switch to an alternative, and that will often lead to resolution of symptoms in the meantime. And then another differential for kind of chronic diarrhea to talk about that we haven't already mentioned. Um, is about small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which I think you kind of briefly mentioned on earlier, quickly. but I'll leave you to go through that.
1: Yeah, so small bowel intestinal overgrowth, or shortly known as SIBO, is associated with many other predisposing factors, commonly when patients have diabetes or scleroderma, or previous surgeries or small bowel strictures, often this predisposes patient to high risk of developing small bowel intestinal overgrowth. Unfortunately, there are no specific investigations for SIBO, mainly because the low specificity and sensitivity of the test that was previously used. Small bowel culture aspirate is the gold standard but as the name suggests, it's going to be expensive and fairly invasive to do. Hydrogen breath test was previously used, but new guidelines have said it does have very low specificity and sensitivity and is no longer recommended. So, in, term, in terms of approaching this group of patients, often if you suspect it, you're going to give them a sort of an empirical cause of antibiotic trial and see if they respond to it to sort of make a positive diagnosis of SIBO.
0: Yeah, and, and SIBO is, uh, is again something that's quite. Well, we think is quite common. It's incredibly actually difficult to come up with a robust diagnosis for SIBO in both a term research setting, but also a clinical setting as well. You know, with IBD, it's most of the time it's clear cut. With SIBO, it can be very difficult. And the tests that we used to use have lots of confounding factors like a breath test as quickly talked about. And it's very rare we do a full um, enteroscopy with jejunal aspirate and culture, and get something from that. The key, the key here, really, when you're trying to diagnose, is SIBO, is to make sure you've ruled out other things. Listen to the clinical history. So they'll often have predominance of things like bloating, flatulence, indigestion, and then and then lots of diarrhea with that. And look for risk factors. So Kriti talked about some of the risk factors there. So association with lots of you know problems that would impair things that would, diseases that would impair your normal small bowel function. So diabetes, scleroderma, but also prior surgery and also. So a lot, if people tend, can often get it, they've had lots and lots of courses of antibiotics and it's fairly common at that stage. So something to ask about in the history, as we talked about right at the beginning of this video, and then management often is is empirical antibiotics, which seems strange if one of the causes is lots of antibiotics. But that's where it comes down to choice of antibiotics. Most units will have a protocol in place. Cipro and Metro is obviously is often a, a common one, but actually the research will, will suggest that the most effective at treating SIBO is rifaximin, so a non-absorbed antibiotic, but it's expensive and as a result, it's quite difficult to get on the NHS unless or a consultant uh, or in a tertiary center. So it can be challenging to find that and to treat that. So I think that's that's a good summary of, of SIBO from the Eucriti there. And then we'll briefly touch on pancreatic insufficiency, and then we'll go to, I think, a bit more of a detailed chat about IB. So
1: moving on to pancreatic exocrine insufficiency, this is often usually as a result of chronic pancreatitis or patient with pancreatic cancer or pancreatic surgery. Mm-hmm. Main symptoms uh, relating to these particular conditions are steatoria, where patients often complain of bulky stools, where it's difficult to flush, and often they can also present with weight loss and other signs of malabsorption. Investigations-wide faecal astase is quite important, as Michael previously mentioned during investigations for chronic diarrhea. So the normal values uh, is about 200 to 500 micrograms. so anything below less less than 200 often indicates sort of some form of pancreatic exocrine insufficiency and if they do have this then you should have some form of imaging of the pancreas either in form of ct pancreas or more specifically you can do an endoscopic ultrasound if the ct scan is not very conclusive, and this mainly to assess if there's any signs of pancreatic malignancy that is often not picked up on conventional ct scan and treatment again will be crayon replacement making sure the other vitamin D often is quite low in these patients. It's a fat soluble vitamin, and making sure patients' are bone health is so, all uh, looked after.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't add much to that other than just say, as you said, that all the fat soluble vitamins, A, D, E, and K, all need to be supplemented to make sure that they're treated and Creon is titrated as to symptoms, and that's often best done with dietitian input. But you can start off with a with a regime of something like 50,000 units with meals and then 10,000 units with stacks and then titrate up as you need to in terms of being guided by patient symptoms. And then lastly, the other the other kind of big and probably one of the most common causes of chronic diarrhea is irritable bowel syndrome. And Kriti, I'll leave you to just go through that a bit there.
1: Yeah. So IBS or irritable bowel syndrome, as Michael mentioned, it's one of the very large group where... With chronic diarrhea often present with. It's a functional GI disorder, often characterized by abdominal pain and change in bowel habit in the absence of any organic pathology. It is a positive diagnosis rather than a diagnosis of exclusion. So it's based on the Rome 4 criteria, which you've probably heard of. So the sort of the criteria would be patients presenting with recurrent abdominal pain for at least a day in a week in the last three months. And they need to have two of the following symptoms, which are the symptoms are related to defecation, associated with change in the frequency of stools or change in the form of stools. So it's a positive diagnosis based on this criteria. Investigations while well, you often don't need to carry out investigations in these patients, as, as I mentioned, it can be made on clinical grounds alone. But if you do suspect other disease on other concurrent disease or they do have any other rate flags, then you should carry out a, a sort of endoscopic assessment. Obviously, you're going to be doing your blood test, ruling on celiac disease, other endocrine disorders, stool tests. Endoscopic assessment is not necessarily indicated in this patient, especially younger group of patients with a very clear-cut IBS type of symptoms. Management-wise, so I've sort of divided them into lifestyle and dietary advice, pharmacological therapy, and psychological therapy. In terms of lifestyle and dietary advice, so sort of... Asking patients so a lot of online guidance about sort of dietary advice 5 removing fiber from your diet, or well, often patients can benefit from a certain a specific diet called FODMAP diet. So, a patient can be referred to the dietitians to be consulted on this particular diet. Pharmacological therapy, again, depending on the type of IBS, some patients may have more constipation as their predominant symptoms. Some patients sort of can have diarrhea as their predominant symptoms, or sort of mixture of two symptoms so of diarrhea. You can start patients on loperamide, and there are more novel agents now. So, this is, PSG is a very good guideline for IBS. And it's a good table summarizing sort of the different pharmacological therapies. I would highly recommend looking at it. Uh, for constipation, you obviously can use laxatives. Uh, for this group of patients, there are another sort of group of medication called secretagogues. So we can, such as lubiprostol, inaprotide, uh, as more noble agents, uh, central acting agents, uh, to sort of increase, uh, to help with the motility of the gut. And patients presenting with abdominal pain, you sort of can start them on antispasmodic agents such as uh, hyosin, obascopen, or peppermint oil. And failing that, you can sort of start down with neuromodulators such as tricyclics or your SSRIs, commonly we use amitriptyline. And the last group is psychological therapy. As mentioned at the start of the video, these patients often have other psychological factors of, such as anxiety, depression. So it is key to make sure that we address those or often asking the primary care doctors or referring them for CBT to make sure that this sort of confounding factor is equally addressed as well.
0: Yeah, and I think I think that's a, a good summary of everything. You know, and we're gonna, we won't go into too much more detail. I think the key things that you say are t- it's a positive diagnosis, and it's and it's about communicating that to the patients. You know, the the it is easy; it's difficult for some patients to accept that they've got a functional bowel disorder, i.e., where we we in old tests can't find a physical or histological or structural problem that's causing their symptoms. And so it takes time to explain that to patients and explain why, and, you know, the complex relationship between our gut and our brain and our underlying emotions and all of that needs to be explained to them in clinic. And when the diagnosis is made and and give them insight to going forward, they can identify any stresses, whether it's caffeine, you know, certain foods, or whether it's stress at work or, you know, depression or anxiety, all of those things. Will often make things worse, and it's about identifying the triggers and trying finding ways to avoid it. And then the management is really f- trying to focus and keep away from long term medications if possible. So it's things like lifestyle changes, you know, like you talked about, so exercises and you know hypnotherapy, CBT, identif- uh, you know, identifying the causes for underlying anxiety and depression and that kind of thing, and addressing those rather than just starting with medications. And then, but as you say, you know, some people will need to progress to medications. Diet- dietitian input is useful alongside those medications or without it and then the medications you're going to start depend upon the the predominance of of their symptoms so if there's ibs d c m or u so d is diarrhea predominant c is constipation predominant m is mixed and u is unspecified so you know if they're constipated then obviously you need to use agents that are going to get gentle laxatives to get the bowels going but also promote agents like you talked about so calipride or or things like lenaclitide. Uh, if there's if they're the other way around and they're, they're having lots of diarrhoea, then you need to think about things like the paramide or andansotron to try and help with those things. So it's very much about listening to the listening to the patient's history and their symptoms and going forward with that. And it's it, 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 to manage IBS well takes time and it and it's uh, it's a complex condition that, that you know you have to spend a lot of time with the patients and try and build a good rapport about. Um, so I think there are obviously other rarer diagnoses and causes of qu- things like chronic diarrhea, but we're not going to go into those there. I think we've covered the the main ones there, which you've done very nicely with you, And I think we've covered a lot of information in quite a long video, um, but hopefully it will be useful for people to have a, a kind of structure as to how they approach these patients and how in the interviews or, or in clinical practice, you would approach someone that you're seeing with chronic diarrhea. Anything else you'd like to say, with you?
1: no no Mike, i think you've sort of supplemented all the bits yeah
0: perfect all right Well, well we'll end the video there and and we'll move over to the clinical scenarios
1: cool thank you